This is your Thursday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Lots to talk about today. Hope everyone's having a happy Thursday. I'll be joined in a little bit by Sarah McClellan, Star Tribune beat writer, covers the Wild. We'll, of course, talk about that team, where they stand after 15 games, which is pretty good. Overall, 15 games in, they are 10-5. and five. Goal differential... Not that great. Only a couple goals uh, scored, a couple more goals scored than allowed. Won a lot of close games, but that is a good trait for a team to have. And they haven't gotten a whole lot of production yet from Kevin Fiala or Kirill Kaprizov, at least from the goal department. So could be even better things ahead for them if and when those guys get going. And Sarah and I will talk about that more here in a little bit. Also talk Timberwolves. I, uh, Wrote on uh, wrote and talked about uh, the other day about how they kind of need to take advantage of this opportunity. They got some winnable games coming up on their schedule. One of them was Wednesday night at home against Sacramento, a four and nine start to the season, starting to feel like same old Timberwolves, and it felt that way in the first half yesterday. But they did rally to beat Sacramento. Looked pretty good doing it, and I'll talk about that here again in a little bit. And a fact about the 2014 Detroit Tigers that I saw on Twitter the other day that blows my mind. But first, what did I miss? So I feel compelled today to talk about Byron Buxton and where he stands with the Twins. I don't feel like a whole lot has changed since, really since July even when you know, there were rumblings that the Twins were looking at moving him in a trade at the deadline or even uh, at the end of this offseason when his future was kind of addressed. And obviously, he has one year left before he can become a free agent. There is talks about an extension with the Twins, but the Twins not wanting to go beyond $80 million over seven years and Buxton's camp, rightfully so, uh, wanting more money than that. That seems like a lowball offer for a player who, though has had a hard time staying on the field, has definitely become the kind of player when he's healthy that you absolutely want him to be. Had a spectacular season, again, when healthy in 2021. The Twins are a much better team in the last few years when he's been on the field as opposed to when he's not on the field. So some fresh reporting. I don't know if a whole lot got added to the equation, but kind of kicked up this dust again, the athletic uh, reporting that, you know, sources, you know, major leagues, those people in the industry expect the Twins to trade Buxton, um, but the team officials are still deciding what to do about this, whether they should trade him, whether they should work harder on an extension, push their offer up, um, things like that. To me, here's, a, here, here's the bottom line to me. I don't think you can afford to trade Byron Buxton. I get that it's dicey. I get that Signing someone so injury prone to a you know expensive long term contract could could come back to bite you right you, you, even if you miss him for large chunks of that that's a big dead space on your payroll um, that that you know teams like the Twins can't afford to have. The other side of the equation is this: you can't afford you can't afford to lose him. You can't afford it for a number of reasons. One. You know the player he is right now, and that you know for a long time you were waiting to see is he ever going to be fulfill his potential. That piece of the equation has been answered. He absolutely is fulfilling his potential. The question now is, can he stay healthy? And last year, unfortunately, the answer in more games than not was no. He missed two large chunks of the year with that hip injury, and then after that hit by pitch, 
uh, with, with the fracture in his hand. So those two things, you know, the second piece of it was just kind of bad luck. The first one, though, was a very much a, you know, one of those soft tissue lingering type things that you worry about if you're going to give someone upwards of $100 million over a seven-year contract, which seems like would be fair market value in the deal. But I think there's some optics at play here. I think, you know, I'm just going to read. Um, there's a lot of comments and comment sections. I'm going to read part of a, a text message from a friend of mine the other day who's very frustrated about all this, saying, A lot of fans were okay with Jose Barrios leaving because it seemed like there was no way the Twins would be able to keep him past this year, but now, A, it sure looks like that wasn't true, and B, the same thing seems to be happening with Buxton. I've given this front office the benefit of the doubt on a lot of things because they at least seemed like honest mistakes, but we're now looking at the possibility of their best pitcher and best position player being traded within months of each other because of absurd low-ball offers that belie their public statements. Yeah, I, I'm picking up on that, and I think that's I think there's something I think there's something to that. He lumps in Jose Barrios with this. Jose Barrios just signed a seven-year, $131 million extension with the Blue Jays. Now, whether that could have happened with the Twins had they not traded him this past trade deadline, I'm not sure. That damage in that relationship might have been what was preventing them from being able to sign him to a long-term deal and not the money. Well, we'll maybe we'll never entirely know about that, but you know, seven years, 131, I don't think I would have paid Jose Barrios that kind of money if I'm being honest. That said, I would pay Byron Buxton. I think and I, and I think uh, I think there's some something to the frustration with a front office that might be wa- watching two players like this walk, even if I think the Brios decision was a smarter one than a Buxton trade potentially would be. Now, how, I just it doesn't it doesn't make much sense to me how you can sign a you know a mid 30s third baseman like Josh Donaldson to a contract for more than 20 million dollars a year and then have hesitance over signing Byron Buxton to something that's an, a, you know a shorter I'm not not a shorter term deal, but a less money deal, and uh, you know, for someone who's gonna be you know gonna be entering the prime of his career as opposed to you know the 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 later stages of his career, I just think the optics of this are particularly bad. I think the Twins are probably weighing that. I think they're probably trying to decide: can we? <clears throat> how bad will we look if this is what we decide to do? And I think the answer to that is very bad. So it's gonna be an interesting off season as they consider this. Um, I, I just, I, at the end of the day, I can't see how, if both teams are genuinely interested in getting something done, like it has been reported, you know, by the Star Tribune, Phil Miller reporting that, you know, both, both sides want to get something done. It's a matter of money more than anything. I don't see how they don't get together eventually and get something done. That said, it is always full of surprises in this market. And if they lose Byron Buxton, I think they will regret it for many, many years to come. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake for 24-7 gaming, fun restaurants and bars, and luxurious hotel rooms. And join Club M to bask in the rewards. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Happy to welcome Sarah McClellan back on Daily Delivery. Covers the wild for the Star Tribune. 10-5 and record this season. Nothing to complain about there. Uh, If you're a wild player, coach, fan, whatever. So I want to get into a few things with you, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm pretty good. Thanks. Um, I, I watched a good amount of the Tuesday game against San Jose. Maybe that's a, 
I've, I've watched, you know, I've watched a, a number of wild games this year, but maybe that's a bad one to, uh, to have freshest in my memory because it feels like some things came up there that, you know, maybe been bugging me a little bit about this team, even with the, even with the, uh, the, the 10 and five records. So I want to ask you right off the jump about, you know, just, you know, the 10 and five, they've done it largely without a ton of at least goals from Kevin Fiala and Kirill Kaprizov. I think they have five combined through 15 games, obviously getting plenty of contributions outside of them. But how, as you think about, you know, how sustainable is it to, to have, you know, to win two out of every three games without getting more from those two guys going forward? Well, it makes you wonder if they do start contributing at the clips they're, you know, been known to produce at, what is this team's potential then? Like, it really begs the question, like, wow, what could this team do if those players start to pick it up offensively? And if players like Ryan Hartman and Marcus Foligno and Joel Erickson continue to contribute. Um, But in the meantime, you know, I think the fact that they're still getting the results without those players being major catalysts is obviously encouraging. And at some point you may look back that, this was very, you know, a very vital stretch for this team to pick up points and bank wins without, you know, its premier players contributing like they like they tend to, like they used to. Um, but still, I, I think it's something that probably the microscope is going to stay on, um, especially for Kaprizov. You know, this is his second year. He's not a surprise. Not that he wasn't last season. I think teams were probably aware, but it was limited to the West division. He only played the same seven teams. And now the rest of the league is, you know, getting their chance to go up against him. And they're definitely clearly aware. I I think back to that Winnipeg game in October. And, you know, I think that was like, the very first clear example of just how a team in its first opportunity to play against him played him, um, you know, so closely and checked him hard and, um, you know, followed him essentially around the ice, you know, maybe to an extent that last season, maybe it got glossed over or the, the familiarity was there or, you know, it just felt different. And that was, you know, one of the first examples of that, of a new team playing against him. So, it certainly probably has to be an adjustment period, um, you know, for him to adapt to that type of scrutiny and attention. I'm sure a player of his caliber, though, has probably faced that throughout his career. Um, when he talked uh, a few weeks back, he mentioned being like a slow starter and how when he gets that one goal, he can kind of uh, get on a roll. Uh, that hasn't happened yet since he since he snapped his goal scoring slump, but. It's key for the wild because obviously he's a big feature and fixture of this offense. Same with Kevin Fiala. Um, And those players are, that's their MO. That's their job to score goals and deliver. So uh, I think, like I said, big picture that the team is still winning is really indicative of the contributions of the Ryan Hartman's and the Marcus Foligno's and um, those players right now in the lineup. But for the while to have long-term success, Kevin Fiala and Kirill Kaprizov ultimately probably have to be at the forefront of that push. You you mentioned it in your game story that teams do kind of sometimes struggle when they come off the road. That first home game for whatever reason can be, you know, whether it's legs, whether it's just kind of reorienting yourself 
Um, hopefully you didn't suffer the same thing. Seemed like your game story was just fine um, coming <laughs> off the road. Um, but it did, it did seem like Dean Evison was a little bit irked by, I don't know if it was the effort or if it was just the output, but um, what did you, what did you gather from that game specifically? And just like the, what seemed to be um, troubling him from what he saw in that game? I think to me, the starts keep standing out. And I felt like the start in Tuesday's game was similar to the start in Vegas last week. And again, you know, falling behind by a couple of goals. And, you know, even though this team has certainly had a knack for for rallying, it just doesn't feel the same. And, you know, I think they're falling behind differently than maybe they did earlier in the season. Um, They just kind of look out of sorts and uh, sluggish. You know, I think that was the word Marcus Foligno used. Uh, But just, yeah, you know, maybe Tuesday's game was an example of, you know, that kind of uh, layoff that can kind of happen in that first game back. And especially maybe you're changing time zones. I don't know why, but this, this just happens in the NHL. Some, some people acknowledge it, some don't, but that first game back from a road trip always seems to be a challenge. I've seen it, you know, throughout my years covering the NHL, but you know, you didn't have that excuse for the team on Thursday in Vegas. And to me, that, that start stood out as well is that it just seemed like the team was just off a little bit, kind of clunky, um, making mistakes that it maybe doesn't normally make. And, and to me that maybe that one stands out more because that was the first game against the golden Knights since the playoffs, Vegas was not, you know, rolling out its usual lineup. It was decimated by injury. Robin Leonard, the starting goalie wasn't playing. I mean, it was the backup and the team just didn't seem to have that cohesiveness to put together an effort that, you know, could have, you know, obviously defeated a team that was struggling and, in, you know, facing quite a bit of adversity, especially it wouldn't have rewrote history, but there seems to be a little extra, you know, feel around these games against rivals and playoff opponents of the past. And it just felt like the dial was turned down a little bit. So I think it goes back to these starts. And I think that is, that is probably the big takeaway I'm seeing lately is just this team isn't starting on time. It isn't starting cohesively. And as much as they have this, you know, propensity to rally and turn it on in the third period, the climb is just getting too tough. And you know, especially when these teams add that insurance goal, like the Sharks did to make it three, one, it just becomes that much tougher, you know, that late in the game. So I, I would put, you know, the attention right now on the first period and and needing to be better from the drop of the puck and just not make, you know, the mistakes that we're seeing. There was two times in the first period Tuesday where the team pulled itself offside, you know, lost control of the puck while they were set up in the offensive zone. Who knows what would have happened, but it's mistakes like that that just seem uncharacteristic, but they're costly right now. And you mentioned, you know, just the, the slow starts. Certainly they've been resilient to you know get points get wins in games where they have fallen behind I think team speed is is certainly a thing that is noticeable this year particularly you know contrasting even to a couple years ago Um, but as I think about this team I'm still you know obviously it's it's a it's Kirill Kaprizov and it's it's some other elements but as, as I try to think of a single identity for this team um you know through 15 games which is a decent sample size now what do you what do you see emerging is there one kind of overriding thing where you say 
when the wild is at its best, this is how it wants to win and or behave. Well, the results so far would indicate it's these comebacks. And I think that pluckiness, that resilience, you know, maybe as cliche as those words sound, I think they do hold weight with this team. And, you know, maybe some of that is this team's been on the road a lot this season. They've kind of, you know, kind of bonded together. Um, They've gone into these other buildings. They've had to claw their way back. Um, I, I do think there's something to that. You know, we'll see if it's a sustainable way to win. Obviously, these last few games, it, it hasn't worked. They haven't been able to rally. But I, I do think the timing of that and, you know, some of the dramatic fashions that they've, that they've uh, achieved these wins, you know, Marcus Foligno's goal in, in the season opener with, you know, less than 10 seconds to go and, um, you know, the, the overtime win against Winnipeg and Kirill Kaprizov's overtime goal. I, I just think the collection of these moments have probably really solidified some level of belief that this team feels it can it can come back. And I think it, you know, the more times they've done it, it, it does look like that's the case, that they believe and that, you know, it, maybe the easier it becomes, as strange as that sounds, that the more times they've done that. But with that, I think there's, you know, you have to avoid the complacency of, well, the third period, just wait, like it's going to, you know, it's going to happen. Just wait. Because again, these slow starts and, and poor beginnings are coming back to haunt the team. So it's not a foolproof recipe just to like wait to the third period and it's going to be a different team. I still think this team is looking for that complete 60 minute uh, effort, um, a performance from start to finish that, um, feels conclusive, that feels definitive, that feels like all the boxes are checked. Um, and yet, you know, like you said, this team has 10 wins out of 15 games. So I think there's, you know, probably more potential to be untapped, but I do think that vibe, that culture is being fostered where this team believes it looks like a team, obviously that, um, has the confidence, um, you know, they talk about shortening their shifts and, and getting off the ice so the next guy can hop over the boards and, and you have the trust that he can do his job. And, you know, maybe again, it sounds cliche, but I think they play like that and believe that. Um, so I do think there's something to that, you know, a month plus into the season. There were a lot of dust ups and fights in that San Jose game. And it feels like whenever I turn, I feel like whenever I turn a wild game on for whatever reason, Marcus Foligno is fighting and he did again on Tuesday night. Um, how do you, uh, is that how they want to play or is that just circumstantial in a game? And, and that's just how that, how that game evolved. Yeah, I think that's probably circumstantial. You know, I don't think this is a team that's going out looking for that. Um, I think it's a team though, that realizes when it's engaged and, you know, it, it plays hard and gritty that it tends to have success. You know, this is a team that, you know, especially looking at players, a Marcus Foligno, a Jordan Greenway, when they're finishing their checks and they're engaged and they're just tough to move around the ice, this is a team that tends to have success. Um, and that all, you know, most of that rough stuff happened after Matt Dumbas hit in the second period. And that was a play that, you know, obviously the wild got a power play from it. Um, It's a two, one game. It had the potential to tie the game and really turn, um, continue to turn the momentum because that felt like that was probably, um, you know, the most maybe engaged or, you know, maybe the team felt like that was maybe the point that it could turn the tide and and really kind of turn the corner against the sharks. 
it didn't happen. Like I said, that 3-1 goal happened in Eric Carlson's slap shot. Um, but I think the physicality, you know, there's those moments where they're trying to create something. They're trying to get engaged. They're trying to spark some momentum. And I think that was probably just the byproduct of, of those plays, especially the Dumba hit. Um, that happened, but this is the team that when it plays that hard, you know, gritty, hard-nosed style, that's where the success happens because it gets on the puck. It's tough for players to move them. They get in on the forecheck. They kind of become immovable objects along the boards. And, and that's how a lot of goals have been produced so far this season. A couple more things for you, Sarah. Um, one cam Talbot has been, I think pretty good this year, but also, maybe the numbers have dipped a little bit from where they were last year. He's played 12 out of the 15 games, which sounds about right when you think about the context of the season. Um, what, what's your impression of you know, his numbers? The save percentage just above 90, goals against just below three. Um, some different guys on the blue line, and we'll talk about one of the reasons why here in a minute as we think about the Dallas game on Thursday night. But what, what's been your impression of his play so far this season and the play in front of him as well. Yeah, you're right. It is a new blue line in front of him. And I think that was probably a big takeaway last season was just how cohesive both sides were. Um, I think that was, you know, when you heard from Cam Talbot talking about why Minnesota was an appealing destination for him as a free agent, it was the opportunity to play in, you know, behind this blue line. Obviously, it's a completely different looking blue line. Um, so I think there's probably a feeling out transition process there. Um, but you're right. I, I think the workload has been probably what you'd expect. Um, I think that season opening back to back was the only time where he's handled both ends of a back to back. And, um, you know, so Capo Kakinen's gotten a few appearances here and there. Um, but you're right. You know, this has been with the standard that he had last season. Um, you know, I think there's that expectation that he'll continue to be that rock solid presence back there. Um, I, I think, though, you know, you see some of these games and, you know, we talk about these comebacks and rallies. A lot of them have been these high scoring games. And I, I don't know if that is, like we said, maybe circumstantial, just how these games have, have unraveled. But the wild has been in a lot of high scoring hockey games and it's found a way to prevail, but I'm curious to see if, if that starts to settle down with the more games that happen and if Talbot kind of shuts the door and, and, you know, maybe we see more two, one, three, two type games because for so long, that's been the identity of this team. This is a little different. These six, five, five, four outcomes, but he's still going to be, I think again, at the forefront and somebody who obviously has a big sway in dictating the success of this team, um, especially, like you said, with a reworked blue line uh, after some key departures for this team. You weren't here for the Jacques Lemaire era, but 6-5 would have been with like two weeks worth of goals for both teams. That would have been a, this is definitely <laughs> a departure from, uh, from those days. Um, like you mentioned, Ryan Suter, a key offseason departure, part of the buyout. He and Zach Parisi both bought out. He is now with Dallas. They play at XL Energy Center against the Wild on Thursday night. What do you imagine that will be like? Someone who wore, you know, the wore the Wild sweater for nine years. It's it, it was a pretty pretty big long run for him. Plenty of playoff appearances. How do you think the? I think that reunion will look, especially considering how it ended here. You know what I mean? Yeah, probably similar to what happened a few weeks ago when Zach Parise returned with the Islanders. You know, it kind of maybe 
from the outside in looked a little jarring to see somebody in new colors from a fan's perspective. Um, I think there was actually quite a few fans lined up around the Islander side of, of the rink um, during warmups with signs and you saw jerseys. Um, so I, I, I'm guessing it'll probably be somewhat similar, you know, for, for Ryan Suter's return. Again, someone who just became embedded in the fabric of this franchise for so long and uh, was a big reason for why this team turned into a perennial playoff team. Obviously, you know, the ultimate goal, a Stanley Cup, uh, you know, never happened during their, their tenures here, but um, still a productive you know, a productive impact. And, you know, now he's moved on to the stars. I think a team that's trying to rebound and be an up and coming player in, in the central division. And he's part of, you know, a blue line there that's, you know, regarded as one of probably the elite in the NHL. So um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, how that's received. And if it's probably similar to Parise's return, they had the video tribute during a break in the action in the first period. Um, but, you know, I, I, if it's similar to what Zach said, you know, he's moved on. And that's what Parise said. And for Suter to land in Dallas and have a role carved out there um, and get a contract with them, um, perhaps he feels the same way, that it's a new chapter. And um, obviously we'll see, we'll see what he says. Yes, we will. It should be interesting, especially since, you know, like we talked about plenty of times, the, the Parise buyout was maybe a little surprising that the suitor portion of the buyout this summer was, was the bigger stunner and, and, until you kind of thought about it in the context of all the uh, salary cap and what they're going to have to do to get some of these guys they wanted this year. So yeah, I'll be interested how motivated he is in that game. I'm sure there's plenty of, uh, plenty of motivation from, uh, from him in that game. And it'll be a fun one to watch from that perspective. Um, Sarah, good stuff. Appreciate you always joining daily delivery and we'll do this again soon. Okay. Take care. Sounds good. Good stuff from Sarah as usual. Does a great job on that beat. And I should mention Ryan Suter having a pretty good year so far in Dallas, 14 games, eight points, averaging almost 23 minutes on the ice. So not like it seems like he's lost much of a step. And I don't think that was ever necessarily the question, uh, with his game. It was more of a can the Wild afford to pay him what they're paying him? And, you know, do they need just a wholesale change in leadership in that locker room? And I think that's been a big piece of this as well. Like I mentioned at the start, Wolves got a much-needed win on uh, on Wednesday night, beat Sacramento 107-97, to and it came uh, with a twist. It sounds like... Uh, Sounds like Chris Finch was not happy with the team. Wolves were losing 48-44 at halftime. And more than that, they were getting absolutely killed on rebounds. I'll read you some stats here in just a minute. But first, I want to play a clip from Anthony Edwards talking about Chris Finch's messaging at halftime. I mean, yeah, you got Finchy, Finchy in there yelling. I mean, that's not him, you know what I'm saying? So when he's doing that, he be like, oh, we got tight up. He banging on the door. We got tight up. Man. We can't have bitch in here acting out of character. So, nah, yeah, we we, we for sure uh, had to find a way to uh, rebound. I mean, I feel like we did a pretty good job in the third quarter at keeping them to one shot. That's not Finchy, but, I mean, when he do it, then we have to respond in a certain way. Finch was justifiably upset. The Wolves for the game had a defensive rebound percentage of 50%. That means they got – 50% of all available defensive rebounds. That is dismal. That is awful. That you can't, you generally will not win a game if you 
are doing that. And that's kind of the, the thing that's really hurt them on defense this season and a defense that's, you know, by and large been much better this year than, than it has been in past years. Defensive rebounding percentage for the year, Wolves are dead last in the league, 65.7%. You know, next worst is Sacramento at sixty nine point five percent. So you got, you know, it they're 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 in last place by a large margin. You know, league average, the team right in the middle, Chicago Bulls at seventy three point four percent. So basically, the Wolves grabbing like eight percent fewer rebound opportunities than the next, uh, than you know, than the than the just than just the average team this year. And that's you know that that speaks to we've talked about that speaks to their size, their lack of size in the middle, the lack of upgrading at power forward this is something they've you know and 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 they're you know smaller players not helping out as much on rebounding like they could be you know that that's that's always going to be a big piece of it there as well you know if you look at uh, if you look at yesterday they didn't get a ton of help up and down the roster I mean they had guys pitching in but you know yeah it looks you know nobody had more than seven rebounds in this game Jared Vanderbilt had seven um you know Carl Anthony Towns had six rebounds in 37 minutes um, I was listening to a podcast of the day, Towns just getting blasted. I think it was Zach Lowe's podcast getting blasted for being a bad rebounder in that, especially I think it was coming off of that Golden State game. Um, so he's getting a reputation around the league for not being a very good rebounder. And, uh, you know, it, it's showing up this year. I mean, he's your he's your biggest biggest player. He's your center in the middle. And if you're dead last in the league in defensive rebounding, that does not speak well to him. But all that said, got a much-needed win, played a very good second half, including a fourth quarter where they were able to close things out. Anthony Edwards had 16 of his 26 points in that fourth quarter. Carl Anthony Towns was a plus 22 for the game, a very efficient 9 of 12 shooting, 22 points. I thought D'Angelo Russell looked pretty good, 17 points, 7 assists, 4 rebounds, 2 steals, kind of filling up the, the stat sheet. And Patrick Beverly played one of his best games in a Wolves uniform, 14, 7, and 6 for Beverly, and a three blocked shots for Patrick Beverly as well. So now the question becomes can they keep it going? Can they avoid kind of the trap that they fall into where they have a good game and then next thing you know, they're they're right back into the losing ways. They'll find out as soon as tonight when they play the Spurs. Spurs are not a good team right now. Spurs down there in the standings, even below. The Wolves this season. Let's see what their what's their overall record right now. Spurs are four and ten, while the Wolves are five and nine. Got to have this one. Got to have this back to back. Get yourself two wins in a row. Start feeling good about yourself, and then maybe you can start to build on that against the better teams in the league. Let's finish with the cooler. Saw this stat tweeted by Ben Wagner yesterday of Sportsnet. Crazy. Off the 2014 Detroit Tigers pitching staff, there are five Cy Young Award winners. Robbie Ray in 2021, he was just named AL Cy Young Award winner with the Blue Jays. Max Scherzer, who won it once with Detroit and twice with Washington. Justin Verlander, who won it once with Detroit and once with Houston. David Price, who won it once with Tampa Bay. And Rick Porcello, who won it once with the Red Sox. That is astounding to me that one staff had five Cy Young Award winners on it at one time. Just an interesting thing right there. That will do it for today. Remember, today's Give to the Max Day. I don't know if every dollar matched will help uh, twin sign Byron Buxton, but you can probably give in a better way than that. Thanks for joining me here today on Daily Delivery. I'm Michael Rand. We'll be back at it again on Friday.